You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. He put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. It came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. And they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city, even from Gaiho. While he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. Jump down to verse number 30. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olive, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that were with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went up. Chapter 16, verse number 15. And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with them. And it came to pass, when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, God save the king. God save the king. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. I think for all of us this morning, I would say all of us, we love a good comeback story. Do we not? I'm going to date myself a tad bit this morning. But when I was a kid, uh, boxing, professional boxing was king. I know it's different today, but back then it was king. And and, and back um, years ago, George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world, years ago. And, and he lost the title, but over time started training again. And then at the age of 45, can you imagine, 45, he beats Michael Moore and regains the heavyweight championship of the world. 45 years old, quite the comeback. Uh, For some of you, maybe you're in the tech scene and you you think of all the things you enjoy through Apple today. And it may be um, news to you that back in the 90s, when many of you were born, that Apple was failing. The truth is, it looked like they were finished. And through Jobs and Gates, they made a, a turnaround. And today, that company is the most valued company ever. $700 billion. A great story. An amazing story. Or maybe more recently, you've heard, I'm sure, of Bethany Hamilton. 13 years old, she was a surfer. 
had her arm taken off by a shark. I'm telling you, you don't want to be in the ocean, man. There's scary things in there. She lost her arm. She survived. And today, that woman competes at surfing. It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. And maybe for you this morning, maybe being closer to home, um, Mario Lemieux, retiring with cancer, leaves the league, comes back in the early 2000s, and he helps Canada win the gold medal at Salt Lake City in 2002. It's a great comeback story. And I love to hear those stories. I think of the indomitable spirit of humanity. At times it looks like we're breakable and we will be done, but we're not. It's an amazing thing. I think it gives credence, of course, to the word of God in Proverbs 18, 14 that says, the spirit of man will sustain his infirmities. And we've seen that happen. And I look around this room this morning. There are people that I think of their story. It's an amazing story of grace and redemption. And the fact of the matter is this morning, I guess if you're still standing upright, you have a comeback story. We've been through it. And there's something exciting about seeing someone who's down for the count and all of a sudden, through some, um, some effort or through divine province or, or whatever, they come back and they're, they're better than ever. We love, I love those stories. But with Absalom, it's a comeback story. He had killed his brother, literally got away with murder, exiled from the kingdom. And yet now, through a course of events, he sits on the throne of Israel. And this comeback story, um, this doesn't sit well with me. And I hope with you as well. When we know the character of Absalom, Absalom was the guy who played by his own rules. Uh, not only was he, you know, a narcissist, you saw the picture last week of his hair and his good looks and all those things, in love with himself, the only person he cared about was himself, but, but he did play by his own rules. If he had a problem with you, regardless of who you were, even the general of Israel's armies, he would burn your field down. Not only that. He plotted against his father. And we have to be careful here. I think we say, oh, well, Absalom just wants to be king, and so, Dad, we're done. You step down. I become king. That's not how it works. It's, Dad, I want to be king. you got to die. That's the plan. That's the kind of man he is. He's looking to execute his own father. I was talking to one of our men the other day, and they were talking about Absalom as being the, the, the epitome of the sinfulness of sin. And how, as we think of sin, how it accumulates and one sin leads to another. And by this time now, Absalom is permeated with sinfulness. And yet, in all of that, he is now positioned. He is. He's sitting on the throne of Israel. It's crazy. It's insane. And it almost seems, as you read this story, that the Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good, are somehow just falling in line for Absalom. 
And whether he thinks it or not, maybe he perceives that this is God's blessing on him. And let me tell you, people do think like this. Even people who are wicked, when good things go their way, they always assume that God is pleased. Let me give you an example. Back in 1944, January, or July 20th, Hitler was in what he called the wolf's lair. It was a secret, secure location that he resorted to. Uh, Resort there often, actually. In a three-and-a-half-year period, he spent 800 days there. And on July 20th of 44, someone left a briefcase in the, con- the conference room there with the intent of assassinating Hitler. The briefcase exploded. Several people were killed. Hitler suffered partial paralysis on one side. He had a ruptured eardrum, but he walked away. And later, going back to the scene with Mussolini and to view all the carnage, Mussolini said to Hitler, man, you're lucky. And Hitler said, no, it is of God's providence. This is God smiling on my great enterprise, which was the death of six million Jews plus millions of lives in Europe. Is this God smiling on Absalom's enterprise? Is this is what, what's happening here? That, that somehow this is all working together for good, for Absalom, that God is pleased? Or is God even aware of what's happening and now Absalom's just somehow on the throne? This does not sit well. And the problem with this story for me is I see Absalom as a wicked, wicked man, and yet he positions himself in such a way that it seems like everything he touches now turns to gold. It's problematic. Not only in the story, don't you know some Absaloms out there? Don't you know some people outside of the church who are corrupt, cruel, wicked, selfish, greedy, money-hungry, step on everybody, couldn't care less, and yet, it seems like everything they do turns to gold. You know anybody like that? Yeah, you do. There are are Absaloms out there. And we look at them, and it does seem as if it's all working together for good for them. Everything's falling into place. And for these people, as wicked and as, as ungodly as they can be, it seems like God is smiling. Tragedy never comes to their home. Cancer never visits their families. The drunk driver never disrupts their lives. They're never in a financial downturn. And it seems like as wicked as they are, time and time again, they get off the hook and they come through it shining. We see it all the time. And I think maybe, maybe we wonder, you know, was Billy Joel right about all this? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Besides, sinners have more fun. Only the good die young. Maybe here this morning thinking, what's the sense? I see that. We see it in the sort of Absalom. We see it all around us. 
Now, fortunately for us this morning, we are not the first people to struggle with these questions. We have all seen Absaloms out there. We have seen people who are wicked and evil, and yet it blows our mind that as we struggle through life, they seem to never struggle. Psalm 73 this morning is written by a man named Asaph. He's a contemporary of David. And the truth is, um, he at least knew the story of David, if not knew David and Absalom and this entire time here. And he is thinking the same thoughts that we are thinking this morning about, wait a minute, here is Absalom, a wicked man, and now he's sitting on the throne. Why do those that are wicked prosper? What's up with that? And he starts off in Psalm 73. He's already in a bad place. He says in verse number 2, But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. He says, listen, I'm looking around, and I'm watching me struggle and godly people struggle and, and, and church folks who are trying to do right struggle. And here's this guy or girl that everyone hates. They're like cats always landing on their feet. It always goes well with them. He says, this is bothering me. And then he goes through this progression as, as you read there. And he says, the problem is the wicked prosper. We know that to be true. We see it. I feel like I'm wasting my life. Why am I doing good? Why am I being honest? Why am I showing up at church? And all these troubles follow me. And then he says, I wish I could trade places with them. And, and maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're Absalom. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, hey, preacher man. I get it. I know what the world's like, and the church has nothing to offer me because I know how it works. Church people struggle, and the sinners laugh and party and have a great time. I want none of that. And maybe you're here not as Absalom, but one who's looking around saying, wait a minute, Lord, what gives? We're struggling. We're pleading. We're weeping. We feel like we got kicked again when we're down. And and, and before you join the Absalom team this morning, can we just pause for a second? Because that's what the psalmist did. He's frustrated, so, so much frustrated that he says, and uh, you probably don't have it on the screen, but he says uh, in verse number 13, I've washed my hands in innocence. I, I've washed my hands in vain. I can't even, the, what I'm thinking right now about the world and my own life, I can't even share it with the next generation. It would be devastating to them if they even knew what I'm considering. I'd rather switch with the wicked guy to have what they have. And then he says, this is all too painful for me. And then in chapter uh, 73, verse number 16, he says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. And then he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. I'm struggling, Lord, with this idea. I think the wicked are prospering. I think I'm wasting my time. I would really like to switch lives with them because they got it all and I have nothing. And that's what he thought until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, until he stood still before the God of heaven. And now what you're going to find is his thinking now is recalibrated when he takes some time to see the reality of the God of heaven and the reality of the end of this life. 
And look what he says now in verse number 17. Until I went unto the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Now stop for a second and listen to what was just said. The psalmist says, I'm, Lord, I'm struggling. I can't take this. This is what it seems to be happening. But then I go before your presence, and I see who you are, and understand the end, and now I'm thinking right. And then he says in verse 20, here's how the wicked view you. They think you're sleeping. They think you have no idea. They think you, you are blessing them somehow. He says it's as if you're sleeping. But when you wake up, you will despise their image. Despite, listen to me. The psalmist is talking about the God of heaven, the eternal God of heaven, who he says, it looks like they're getting away with something, but when he wakes up, he will despise their image. Man, that's, not only is that strong language, that's terrifying language. You, you see what's happened here with the psalmist? All his wrong thinking and, and, and wrong to be actions are put to a screeching halt. It, it, it's abruptly stopped when he stands before God and understands the God who is and the life that we live, how short it is. He says, listen, they think they've got it made, but as I think of who you are and what's happening here, when you wake up in their eyes, they will be despised. It's terrifying for those without Christ. And that's the point. And then he goes on as he thinks about this. Verse number 21. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. I can't believe, Lord, that I fell for this. I can't believe I thought this way. When I see who you are and what will happen, I was an idiot. I couldn't believe I got to that point in my thinking. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou shalt destroy all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me. To draw near to God, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all his works. As he's thinking these thoughts, if the wicked prosper, I'm wasting my life. I want to switch. He stops. He sees God for who he is. He sees life, how it truly is. And he says, listen, two things occur to me. Number one, death is the great equalizer. I don't care what you have. I don't care how many parties you go to. I don't care what kind of stuff you're smoking or drinking. I don't care about any of that. Listen to me. We are all marching to the grave. And if you doubt what I'm saying is true, go to the funeral home this afternoon and go the day after and 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 the day after. Lord, 
The wicked are getting away with murder. I'm wasting my life. They seem to have it all. I wish I could have what they have. And the psalmist says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Death is a great equalizer. It doesn't matter. We're all marching to the grave. Therefore, what the world sees as wealth and importance and pleasure and having everything, in reality, it is empty. It's empty. And we are so foolish, we keep on grasping for these things that we believe will satisfy us. For these things that will make me happy, to be accepted, and to have all these things. And, and the psalmist says, wait a minute, when I see you forgot who he is, I realize that what the world says is wealth. Empty. And then he says, not only is death the great equalizer, but the deeds of the righteous are eternal. It, it does matter what we do. It does matter that I follow Christ. It does matter that I try to be honest and a man of integrity or a woman of character. Those things do matter because those things are eternal. And now he has recalibrated his mind in such a way that he's thinking true thoughts. Listen to me. It's been said, if I am wrong about God, if you are wrong about God, we have wasted our lives. And that's true. If we're wrong about God this morning, we should pack it up now and leave. Because we're wasting our time. But if you're wrong about God, you have wasted your eternity. You have wasted forever being despised by his image. And so we need to think through this, my friend. So you say, well, what's the takeaway from this chapter? Yes, the wicked are prospered. I'm struggling with it. I'd rather change places, but now I see they're damned. So praise the Lord. The wicked are damned. Well, fundamentalists, just hold on for a second, okay? That's not all of it there. But that's not the takeaway here. It's truth. It's not the takeaway. The takeaway is these are people who are perishing. They've been deceived, and they must be rescued. And unfortunately, not just for the Absaloms who think they don't want to be rescued, or that's not for them, there are times in our Christian life that we still, after knowing all of this and seeing this, we are still envious of the wicked. We still want what they have. And the problem with both those individuals, whether saved or lost, is this. They do not realize what they have in Jesus Christ. This year, December 15th, Lord willing, I will be married for 30 years. If you're doing the math, I married my wife when she was five. Okay? The night before I married, I didn't sit in my room and say, oh, man, you know what? I'm getting married tomorrow. I can't live with my parents anymore. I mean, I got it made here. got my own room. Own TV, right? I don't pay any bills. Stink, I'm getting married tomorrow. It's all gone. Nor did I say, oh man, I'm going to marry this girl tomorrow and I'll never be able to talk on my phone with the long 20 foot cord for all night long to any other woman. Never entered my mind. Never. There was never a thought that if I get married to this woman, I am losing out big time. I thought to myself, I better marry this woman because this is the best I'm ever going to get. 
And the truth is, it is not about what I missed out. The fact of the matter is, I fell in love with that girl 30 years ago, and I'm still in love with her, and everything else pales in comparison because of our relationship. Thank you. And it's true. It's true. And for too many of you folks, you sit here and you're lost without Christ. And you think church's rules and relationships and regulations, and there are hard things you're supposed to do, but the fact is, it's much bigger than that. It's a relationship, and you have no idea what you are missing out in Christ because you don't know him. And Christian, you have no idea. We get wrapped up in this because we have forgotten the beauty and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. There's something about when the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's talking about a personal experience. We were in Guatemala. The first time we went to Guatemala, um, we took a group of kids, and, and Mitch was in that trip. And so we always encourage folks to bring candy uh, with us because it's nice to give it to the kids, and it's, it's really a nice time. And so we bring candy. So on this one afternoon, we were done working, building this home. We stepped outside of their little fence there, and there's a, just a dirt road. And this sweet, beautiful... 80-something-year-old Guatemalan grandmother, right, just sort of going up the hill, heavy burdens, their lives are hard. She stops there, and Mitch is giving out candy to the kids. And Mitch brought with him Pop Rocks. Do do you know what Pop Rocks are? How many folks do you know what a Pop Rock is? Okay, if you don't know what a Pop Rock is, they're these little candies, and they look like rocks, but they're colored, and you put them in your hand. When you throw them in your mouth, they start popping like crazy, like... So he goes up to this woman and pours these pop rocks into her, 80 years old. You should have seen her face. Right? Uh, after the heart attack, she, um, she, she had no idea. No idea. She couldn't have known. She had never tasted that before. And my brother and sister in Christ, listen to me. For many of us, this morning, for many of us, you know, we're thinking, ah, the world, they have this, they have that. I'm missing out. Our teenagers fall for this stinking lie all the time. I'm missing out. I want a party. I want the pot. I want the drugs. I want the sex. I want this. I want that. This is where life is about. Can I tell you something? That is the oldest lie that's ever been told. And I could have person after person in this room stand up and tell you, I tried that, thought it would work, and guess what? It was like a mouthful of sand because it never satisfied. It never did. It never will. It never can. It can't. If you don't believe them, why don't you believe Solomon, who had it all, and said, I've tried it all. Empty, man. But when you come to Christ... (laughs) The things of this worth of this earth grow palely dim in light of his glory and grace. So what do we do with the Absalom's in our life? Well, we have to ha- recalibrate how we're thinking. And first and foremost, we must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We must drink more deeply. Take your Bibles this morning as we close. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Verse number one, therefore, seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, 
And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, okay, now listen to me, the joy that was set before him, he is going to the cross. Do you know what the joy set before him was? It was you. It was me. It was our redemption. For the joy that was set before him, he took the shame, despising the shame, he says. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Listen to me. This morning, the trouble with most of us as believers is we have drunk of the well of Christ. We know it satisfies. And, and what has happened is we don't take the time Monday to Sunday to think about the glory of the gospel, to drink deeply again, to see what he's done for us. And so then th- there is no satisfaction there because we're not being satisfied by the only thing that can. We look here. We look there. We envy them. It's not fair here. I'm getting kicked in the teeth. I think I should stop. Listen, we must look to Christ Look what he did. Reminder. It worries me that Christian people say, all we talk about is the gospel. What else is there to talk about? And if we would look at the gospel and live the gospel and review the gospel in our lives, it might just be we'll find true satisfaction in our Savior, understanding what he saved us from, and maybe just maybe then everything else will fall into place. It is the gospel. So I look to Christ. When you leave here, listen to me, don't leave here and then just go turn your TV on and and be selfish and greedy and wicked all week long and come on Sunday expecting to be satisfied. Go drink. Taste and see. Remind yourself of Christ. And then remember what the psalmist said. What the world says is wealth is empty. It's empty. And if you want to be a fool and do it yourself, go ahead you'll come back crying and realize that everyone has been right when they say that it's empty. It's empty. But go ahead. You're a hardhead. You want to do it your way? Go ahead. Do it your way. You're a fool. It's empty. So what the world sees as wealth is empty, and what the world tells us is worthless is eternal. Does it matter that you're honest in your homes, your work, and community? Yes, it matters. Why? Because it's eternal. We're working for the kingdom. Does it matter um, how you treat people outside of this building? Yes, it matters because you're a witness for Christ. Does it matter what's going on in your home? Yes, it matters. If the gospel doesn't work at your home, the gospel doesn't work. Does it matter how you raise your kids? Yes, it matters. It all matters. And there's nothing that's insignificant. It's for the glory of God. And so this morning, as we look around, and we know those Absaloms out there. We'll talk more about this next week. Because like, oh man, nothing bad ever happens to them. They got the good life. They don't have the good life. In so many ways. We must remember, I'm looking to Jesus. I'm remembering what he's done for me. He's... Someone died for you. Someone took your sin problem and experienced the wrath of God on his head for you. I look to him, and I remember this morning that what the world calls wealth is empty, and what the world says is worthless is eternal. May we leave this morning 
as we face the Absaloms and these nagging questions and all this goes, wait a minute, this is the truth. The truth shall set you free. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.